0: Hey, this is The Last Coffee out and we are talking about some non-fiction books here. I told you I was reading two of them. One of them I loved, one of them I hated, and we are talking about the one that I hated. So, here we go. It's Political Tribes, Group Instinct, and the Fate of Nations. And I almost read it twice, but it's got not much to it. It's just frustratingly, I'll get into it. Anyway, so it's written by Amy Chua, who's the tiger mom. This book was published in February of 2018, so just last year. Here's what one critic, I think this person was in The Guardian. This critic says, quote, but if there's a way out of this cul-de-sac of victimhood, Chua hasn't found it. What holds the United States together, she concludes in a confusing epilogue, is the American dream, but it must be a version of the dream that recognizes past failure instead of denying it. It's a suitably lame note on which to end a well-intentioned book that never quite comes together, end quote. So that's what this particular author thought about this book. I echo some of those sen- sentiments, but I wonder if we're coming at it from two different angles <laughs> because this is in The Guardian. I'm not sure that we have the same annoyances (laughs) in the same way. Anyway, the content of the book, it's mostly concerned with a lack of awareness of tribal conflict as a factor when it comes to foreign countries and foreign intervention and domestic issues. If that sounds vague, it's extremely vague. And the book's at its strongest when it's kind of talking about the very distinct details of a given country, given intervention. It's at its worst when it tries to wade into orange man bad territory like it's it's got this posture of i figured it out and nobody else did even though it didn't really figure out anything and it doesn't really accomplish anything anyway it talks about starts off in vietnam talks about american intervention in vietnam and how there was a market dominant minority in vietnam the chinese but the book points out that there were chinese capitalists at the top and that when america invaded for ideological reasons to try to prevent the further expansion of the soviet union and the ideology of communism that they failed to recognize the fact that the things that america was selling like being more capitalist more free that kind of thing the vietnamese would attribute those things to the chinese because the chinese were the capitalists so on the ground for the vietnamese uh, the native ethnic population they just they wouldn't be into it for that reason they really resented the chinese capitalists and so this was much of the reason i guess that america didn't do so well in vietnam Ultimately, in the end, so that's what the book's saying. I I really don't know that there's much explanatory power in in this. It's just so vague. It's like this is the most interesting and straightforward exploration when it comes to the thesis, you know, because there's something there's some kind of a, a structure there that makes sense. That it's like, well, no, if you're trying to sell capitalism and they associate capitalism with the the market dominant Chinese, then of course they're not going to be into it. But the, the Chinese. Chinese, after Vietnam gained independence in the 9th or 10th century, the Chinese invaded Vietnam many times and it never went well. I mean, why wouldn't just pure nationalism have greater explanatory power than anything related to ethnic conflict in that particular conflagration? Why, why wouldn't it just be more about, oh, we're being invaded? I don't care what you have to say. <laughs> like we're gonna do what we want to do with our country you know westphalian sovereignty that's what we're supporting why wouldn't it be more that than anything else why wouldn't that just eclipse any other interest because uh, the question is so if america hadn't you know, had coffee with the Chinese or tried to sell capitalism to the Vietnamese, would the Vietnamese just have been like, oh, yeah, all right, well, come on in. Do whatever you're going to do to make sure you fight your proxy war against the Soviet Union. I I just, I don't know that it has a whole bunch of explanatory power. And of course, liberal-leaning writer in this period of history unironically referenced things like Black Lives Matter and Darren Wilson and the election of Obama. And as for the, the first two things, question, one of the themes that she talks about is fear mongering especially later when she gets to criticizing a lot of conservative positions but uh, she doesn't criticize BLM as a movement as tribal as fear mongering she brings up Darren Wilson like I said the the shooter of Michael Brown who was exonerated through the legal process I mean exonerated is the burden is on the prosecution so exonerated isn't really the term to use but the evidence strongly supported that it was a justified shooting so that's a weird thing to bring up and then The Obama election is not brought up critically. It's not like this was an example of tribalism because people showed up on the basis of skin color who would have otherwise not shown up. She criticizes the Trump election based on that standard that a whole bunch of people showed up to vote for Trump. And it was just a whiteness thing, but didn't criticize the Obama election on the same basis. So, again, unironically bringing up those kinds of talking points. So that was earlier in the book where I was just like, "Uh, I'm a little, I mean, whatever. Yeah, you're just kind of stating these things, whatever. That's fine. But it got worse as it went along. So then she gets into this idea. She coined this term supergroup that the United States is a special kind of grouping of ethnicities. It's a supergroup. It can have multiple ethnicities with no established dominant ethnicity. Historically, she would say that, you know, certain aspects of the white population would be the dominant ones. But it's like you can't be French if you move to France. You know, you had to have been born French to be a French person. And in Japan, same thing. You can move to Japan. You're not going to be Japanese unless you're born there. But you can be American. Anybody can move to America and be American, period. So she says that's a a distinction between the way the United States handles it versus any other country in the world, which I don't mind that distinction. I think that's it seems pretty justified. But this is an idea that she works off of. She doesn't do a whole lot with it, but I mean, doesn't do much at all with it, but uh, it's fine. (laughs) That's a fine idea. She goes into Afghanistan, talks about the Pashtun who were like in our travails there meaning the United States talks about the Pashtun who were associated with the Taliban so it made the United States weary of putting a lot of Pashtun in power because of those associations even though the Pashtun were a majority of the country instead the United States put or through the elective process ended up that there were primarily Uzbeks and Tajiks in power which had an ethnic conflict with the Pashtun the Hamid Karzai the like president of Afghanistan if that's what it's called there um was a Pashtun but like everybody else ended up being Uzbek or Tajik so this was disenfranchising it led to more ethnic conflict and she's saying that if we would have been more aware of that then we would have done it in a better way again it's pretty vague I don't know what you would have done to resolve century-long ethnic conflicts no matter what you did I don't know how you would have just handled that and it would have been fine so whatever, but that's... And she doesn't really offer any kind of explanation of that. When she goes to Iraq, she does offer some examples of what's done better, but still, it's not especially helpful. So, in Iraq, it was the Sunni and Shia, you know, that conflict. And... <laughs> (laughs) I don't think the United States was unaware of any of these ethnic conflicts. That sounds absolutely insane. I think they just didn't pay attention to them much because they didn't really care out of, you know, being uh, just seeing as them as a homogenous mass, not really caring. But they certainly had the intel. Functionally, it doesn't make a difference whether it's not caring or not being aware of. But I think she mostly says they just had no idea and they should have had an idea. And now look at me. I'm I'm on my (laughs) I'm in my tower, and from atop my tower, I will descend and impart all this knowledge to all you plebeians. So, in Iraq, uh, eventually, the United States hired regional experts, and they paid attention to ethnic conflicts, and then tensions like went down. I mean, that's plain generic respect for the population. It's like, is that really all that complicated? That really was that really necessary for somebody, an Ivy League law professor, to sit down and be like, oh no, like have just basic human respect for people who are different from you i don't but they were they eventually lowered tensions and were able to leave the fob the ford operating bases and intermingle amongst the population wasn't an issue of course when it comes to any of these kinds of foreign adventures there's always going to be an ego thing about we we'll just we can handle our country let us do it we don't need somebody who <laughs> i mean it's just an ethnic conflict in itself we don't need somebody who looks different from us to come in and tell us how to do things was this where i think she talked about general Petraeus um, and Petraeus was the one who really pushed for and instituted a lot of these ideas about being more respectful of local populations and local ethnic conflicts but again like you're dealing with such complex systems here where it's an entire country with centuries of conflict and you're just saying oh well just be aware of the ethnic conflict done, you know, that fixed it. So bland and generic. She goes into Venezuela, and, and immediately, I don't know, God, it's just so annoying, because people use the term populist to suit their needs at any given time, you know, it's like a populist just tries to make appeals to the general population, all the people who aren't in power. It's like, every politician ever has always done that, so I don't see that as some kind of a special category. I think we talked about this in another book that we were talking about, but she talks about Chavez, and how Chavez. Chavez was a populist and he tweeted so Donald Trump so much like Chavez, I'm sure. Yeah, especially policy-wise, right? <laughs> they would be really simpatico when it comes to that. But Chavez, he was there's this ethnic conflict in Venezuela and Chavez was darker and most of the like she brought up the pageants and how it was always a lighter-skinned Venezuelan who won the pageants. But Chavez was darker and he played off of those ethnic conflicts and and mind inequality to gain power and she was really kind of a Chavez the policy. Through a lot of this, talking about how, oh, he was so democratic. In one of the other books we read, they talked about all the democratic norms he broke all over the place. But it was just, it was a weird detour. And it felt like there was a lot of that. There was just, it wasn't anywhere near rigorous enough to actually establish something through some kind of academic process. So it just felt like a bunch of detours and just vaguely talking about this place. And then it's tied to ethnicity because. So I don't know. It was just it was weird then we get to america of course again have to talk about trump go right to trump and talk about trump because the election of donald trump a duly elected president that clearly won by our constitutional standards of a representative democracy everybody has to like freak out and explain how could this have happened oh my gosh and i love it because it's like later she'll talk about how nobody could have imagined that an african-american could have been elected president how did it happen but it's in a completely different light (laughs) from Trump and oh my god he's such a horrible terrible thing how could it have happened and both of those things it just seems like somebody who's so incredibly out of touch and it's like the the beginnings of the mainstream media when they talked about how far afield it was for an African-American to be elected president and to treat it as some kind of a, a spectacle. oh my gosh I can't believe it happened it just seems like it's a referendum on how out of touch the media is and your average Democratic elite is it's so weird well and that's one of the things that she talks about a lot is in this section too she talks about how liberal elites do tend to be kind of out of like the coastal elites tend to be out of touch or disdainful of middle america and that kind of thing and the whole way through like this whole book is it's like this patronizing, out of touch kind of oh well, I really figured it out and and let me be disdainful of things like NASCAR, WWE. It's just like fulfilling the prophecy of the out of touch elite liberal. You know, it's so odd. She brings up like Occupy Wall Street and talks about how poor people were involved in Occupy Wall Street and most of the especially today, most of the movements. It's not like this grassroots thing from the people who are really trying to figure this stuff out or trying to get something changed. It's like the people who are comfortable enough. They're the upper middle class who are comfortable enough that they can do this kind of nonsense and pretend to have an identity by attaching themselves like a barnacle to... (laughs) But she goes into NASCAR and WWE to say that, oh, look at all these terrible, oblivious people. <laughs> and like she talks about NASCAR and how it it was proudly white and uh, didn't shy away from being so white. and then later talks about how NASCAR is trying to broaden its appeal to other segments of the population, which doesn't jive with the first thing. So I and then WWE, she's like criticizing WWE as being this violent soap opera and it's so terrible and that's what Trump supporters are. They just love NASCAR and WWE and they look for showmanship and symbols and that's all that matter and that alternative facts are just an nar- all this is just like vague nonsense. It, it doesn't actually say or accomplish anything, but alternative facts are just a narrative. They're, they're not really bad or anything like that. Uh, she gets into white versus white uh, based on like economic status and how there's an ethnic conflict there she says tribalism propelled Trump to the White House at the center of everything, of course, because she's... Liberal. At the center of everything is race. (laughs) And this is where I just like threw up my hands. I was like, Are you kidding me? When she says she says the left thinks the right is racist and bigoted, and the right thinks the left is overly concerned with being politically correct and identity politics. And they're both right. (laughs) I was just like, come on. So the right, their their attributes get to be racist and bigoted. <laughs> and the left's attributes get to be overly concerned with political correctness and identity politics. Jesus Christ. And then, like, further, there are a whole bunch of framing issues when it comes to any kind of objectivity whatsoever. But she'll say, like, it may seem absurd that some white people think that white people are discriminated against. And then goes into this lengthy evidence uh, about how whites have a bunch of things to be concerned about <laughs> when it comes to being white. And then follows that up with, of course, other groups and goes through all the stereotypically discriminated against groups and just says really vague things about them being discriminated against like, you know, mass deportation and disproportionate incarceration and being gunned down by police and passed over by taxis and followed in stores and then says, if whites feeling anxiety, uh, you know, about be- how their race is treated, then blacks feel existential dread. Mentions anti-Mexican rhetoric of the president. So just just broad Mexican, all the Mexicans, he's being anti. Talks about women and what they have to whine about, gay and trans people, racial inequities. Every time I see this word, inequities, it's just alarm bells going off that this person did not control for anything ever when trying to figure out whether a disparity meant there's some injustice going on. But, it's just, so it goes down that, gets into, I think, the the epilogue, which uh, she talks about the in the integration of military units, how people just got along in those because they had to work about life and death so great just draft everybody and that'll solve our our ethnic conflicts Uh, she pushes back on immigration for some reason at the end you know criticisms of open immigration and how immigration is not really that bad and then brings up hamilton which is just pure cultural appropriation (laughs) (laughs) and talks about how that's great or something. So whatever. Oh my gosh. Like seriously, whatever. She pretends, uh, this is my analysis now, uh, she pretends to try to be objective about this kind of stuff, but completely not. Completely biased. Not just in the framing like I talked about where a bunch of liberal talking points are taken at face value and a bunch of conservative ones are attacked and where she calls discrimination against white people, oh, that's absurd, but says of course the other kind of discrimination happens says that liberals are (laughs) criticized for being PC and the identity politics and the right is criticized for being racist and bigoted and they're both right. Oh my gosh. So many issues. I mean, just to mention it in passing, like Darren Wilson, which is complete fabrication, that's not something that should be mentioned ever again when it comes to any kind of police violence. I mean, police violence in itself. This is evidence of those things that happened, of those individual officers who did bad things potentially and sometimes demonstrably based on race. That's evidence of those things. Which the last time, like 2015, there were like 30 unarmed shootings in the country out of 800,000 officers who had millions of interactions with the public and yet there's this fear mongering about oh anytime you go outside if you have a certain skin color you could be gunned down just please look at this if just flip it around if it was something that you were you know supported some political point that you're trying to make and there were just a handful of people that were actually engaging in this thing would you attribute that to the entire population would you attribute that to the entire group of course not you'd say well no you don't get to judge on that basis but when it comes to the mainstream media and talking about police shootings 100% okay. After the evidence comes out, and this one case made it all the way through, and they were, it was found to be racially motivated, then okay, let's extrapolate that onto the entire police force. And now let's talk about, oh, if you go outside you might be shot by the police. Just like in the 90s, where where they kept showing African American men as criminals all over the place, and then it was disproportionate that you would think, oh man, if I'm outside, I might get mugged just because the person happens to be black. And people eventually call caught on and said that okay well it's actually a small percentage of the population that's going to actually engage in this criminal behavior so therefore it's incredible fear mongering to to over generalize about whether that's going to happen or not it's the same thing when it comes to police shootings and yet it's completely accepted because it supports a certain ideology and not the other one so whatever mass incarceration oh my gosh like are you you have to control you don't just get to throw up the mass incarceration of people of certain skin color Like you have to control for all the things you have to control because otherwise it's very easy. 90% of the people who are in prison are men. So therefore, it must be incredibly sexist. The entire criminal justice system, right? So if somebody's in prison right now who shouldn't be there, point them out. Like if you know that mass incarceration is completely wrong and there are some giant percentage of the people who shouldn't be there, point them out. And let's go through the process of getting them out of prison because they shouldn't be there. On the other hand, if you can justifiably say that the people who happen to be in present men versus women, that the fact that it's 90% men and 10% women, that that's okay, that it's likely as a result of the Conduct that was perpetrated by the men. Then you could say that on the other side as well. Until you demonstrate by evidence, by controls, beyond a reasonable doubt, or even with clear and convincing evidence, that you've controlled for all the necessary things to demonstrate that it's, it's racial animus and it has nothing to do with any other factor that it could be. Like, you have to do that work. That's why this is fear-mongering nonsense. This is BS. And it's just coughed up like a hairball from liberal elite so they can virtue signal about nonsense. But it keeps happening. It just keeps happening. Uh, Obviously, the bias is like, oh, Trump is like Chavez. because they both tweeted and, and they were populists, which means whatever I want to mean at the current time that I'm talking. She goes to the liberal talking points without criticism. She challenges the right talking points like I already talked about. I'm going through my analysis notes here. And this, another one, this meme of, it just seemed so outlandish for Barack Obama to be elected. Like, that's so crazy. That was so crazy at the time. How much racism are you projecting onto the country? That they, <laughs> that people really, you're projecting all this racism onto the country because you are so terrified of it getting out that you're so racist to think that somebody who's african-american couldn't be president it's so weird it's so shocking she had this sentence about how there are a bunch of conservatives who are ones who think madmen wasn't all that bad like the world of madmen wasn't all that bad and that's what i mean is like she just she throws in all these plugs of complete bias even though she should, she pretends early on that she's trying to be objective about it. like she'll oh i'm taking the <laughs> the liberals to task about this or that issue but in reality i mean just read it it's clearly biased she also does this weird thing where she treats foreign tribal conflicts as like axiomatic there's this patronizing thing that they have their tribal conflicts and it's axiomatic that those are just going to be there so you just have to be aware of those but in the united states she'll challenge the tribal conflict mostly on one side you know versus the other but still it's like it's this patronizing thing where it's like oh well we just have to treat them like children over there on the other side because they're of of a different skin color and different ethnicity so we have to treat them like children but over here you know we can we can challenge them and say that the ethnic conflicts there's something wrong with them it, there's this tone that comes off and i always like there's this thing when it comes to international relations it's like why couldn't the united states just say oh now we're gonna be like japan uh, we're just gonna or now we're gonna be like china why couldn't they just do that and expel anybody who wasn't of original anglo-saxon origin and just say that we're gonna base it ethnically and just just do that from now on i'd i'd be on a boat right next to everybody else uh so would all the catholics and (laughs) and a whole bunch of other people but still why is that so that why is that acceptable when it comes to japan or china that they can do that kind of protectionism and it wouldn't be acceptable for the united states and obviously anybody's gonna say well that's not what the united states is about but it can i mean it can be about whatever the hell it wants to be about it's just i'm saying why aren't we criticizing japan and china and other protectionist nations like that ethnically protectionist nations why aren't we criticizing them for being so horribly racist but we will do that for the United States for like any any possible thing and okay so it's extremely vague obviously there's just really little to nothing that's actually helpful in in the book and she talks about American identity later and obviously there's no ultimate authority who gets to decide that this is what America is going to be you know it's not like handed down from God this is America's identity so do this it it doesn't happen that way so who gets to choose what the identity is going to be but in general I just hated it it's part of the problem it's superficial it just uses a bunch of talking points it tries to feign objectivity the only good parts of it were when it was specifically going into different countries during conflicts like that and just giving some history listen I mean that was the best part of it when it came to Vietnam and a little bit of Iraq and Afghanistan. It was nice to get a little history lesson, but other than that, it was just it was just a bunch of nonsense. People are tribal. Thank you. Thank you for writing a book to tell us that people are tribal. I appreciate it. Uh, so hopefully we get some better, some better books in general. Anyway, if you're interested, I've got a book on Amazon. It's called John Shade Reads, Aspiring Authors. It's about writing and analyzing writing and literature and all that sort of stuff. So if you're interested in that, please check it out. Otherwise, thank you for listening Hope all is well. Okay, bye.